church salvation, we're going through Galatians and salvation, one of the things that I reflect on, and I probably shared this, I know a lot of you who know me, my Sunday evenings very often are spent reflecting on what I said and what I could have said and what I should have said or what I could add to what I said. Does it make sense? So very often I write down a lot of notes on Sunday and Mondays because I'm just in that, just contemplating, I guess, you know, and I, as much as I, I have to decompress after preaching, it's just, just things that just keep going and just thinking about salvation being more than just a statement of faith, because very often we find, repeat after me. How many of you know that? How many of you done? I, I know I did that. And I did that watching a, the, the, the one conscious time I remember doing that is watching a, a video of Billy Graham years back on a VHS tape. It was played, and I, I you know, I remember that. I mean, I know I decided to serve Christ when I was younger too, but that thought about. Repeat after me now, Lord, forgive me. You know what I'm talking about? But please understand that salvation is more, way more than just making a statement like that. We talk about what if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you are saved. Yes, but realize, and I brought this up a couple of weeks back, and it just it's just been living with me, and I've been living in this fact that it's more than just a statement of faith. It's a story of God who loves us. Man, just remember that as you go through the week. Because we need to experience that love at the foot of the cross. We need to experience it. Please don't get me wrong because we need to understand the purpose of the cross, but we also need to experience the love that we find at the cross. You know, as kids, we believe it, but as we grow, the Bible wants us to understand what we believe. Let me just say that first. As kids, very often, and especially if you've come to know the Lord as a kid, we believe because someone told us, right? But the Bible never expects us to still be there. He expects us to grow and mature and understand what Christ did on the cross for us. And again, it's a balance, and I think that's what uh, uh, captured my heart. It's that it's a balance that we need to have because some people put so much emphasis on trying to get rid of the experiential part of salvation. You know, they want to reduce it solely to an intellectual, something we do with our minds. It's salvation. Don't bring your emotions into it at all. You know, you, it's not about the experience. It's about what the Word says Christ has done for you. And yes, that is absolutely true. But do not diminish or look down on a person's, ever look down on a person's personal experience with Christ. Don't ever make that mistake. On the other side, especially given the propensity or the, especially our denomination and some of the other Pentecostals, we put so much emphasis on the experience that sometimes, if I can use the phrase, the theology is messed up because we don't really understand. We don't understand the enormity of Christ on the cross. Please be careful. Please be careful to never water down the gospel where we present Jesus as just our ticket to heaven. That's, right. That's never 
Never make that mistake of just presenting this is Jesus so that you can get to heaven. But realize that on the cross, the justice of God and the love of God just collided together and was met on that cross. That's the understanding we need to have. Don't ever, if I can use the phrase, undermine the severity of the wrath of God that was being poured out on Jesus on the cross. And it was so severe that God the Father himself had to turn his face away. Don't underestimate that. Don't make it about, this is the way to get to heaven, that's it. Don't reduce, like I said, and I've seen this a lot, especially, and again, majority of the people I watch on TV reduce the gospel to, you know, yeah, we make it to heaven, you know, we're making it to heaven, and now everything on earth is all about love, joy, peace, prosperity. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, we have all that. But don't ever forget that it cost the Son of God his life. Amen. It cost him everything. So let's always maintain that balance between, between what we know or believe and what we experience. Because that's exactly what Paul is saying here in Galatians when we get to this part. Exactly what he's saying here as we get to chapter 3. He's saying, hey, he's calling upon the experience of what they've had when he preached the gospel to them. Remember, these are primarily Gentiles. They didn't have... I mean, I'm sure the law was lying around, but they, didn't, they weren't students of the law. They hardly knew about it. They never ever went to a synagogue to learn about everything like the Jews did. But they experienced the love of Christ on the cross. Gentile Christians, of course, in this church and saved by Paul preaching the gospel. And of course, we have these agitators who are Jewish Christians who came from Jerusalem and what they were doing, adding the Jewish law to the gospel. We've talked about it several times now, so by now you should know what's happening. And what they're doing is kind of uh, imposing these rules on these people because I, I was thinking about it this way because they honestly didn't know what to do with these Gentiles. You know, because they have accepted this Jewish Messiah, so what do we do with them now? Well, I guess they just follow the rules like we do. And that's where they are, you know. You want to stay in the family of God? Well, start observing the law. In other words, keep the covenant. Keep the covenant. And that's where Paul is going here. And the main question we see in chapter 3, and uh, if you turn to chapter 3 and verse 7, the main question Paul is getting at is here. Chapter 3, verse 7. I know Chandler touched on this, and I'm just going to jump off that. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. That's at the heart of the issue that he's getting to right now. First it was the gospel, right? Now he's getting to the heart of the issue. Who is the royal child of Abraham? Who is the royal, if you want to call it, who are the royal children of Abraham? And these Jewish Christians are saying, hey, we are, because we're Jewish people and we've observed the law this whole time. And so we follow and keep the covenant and we know circumcision. So we are the real children of Abraham. And if you want to be a child of Abraham, you've got to follow the law too. But Paul is saying, no, hold on. And it's kind of interesting right here because he says, Abraham wasn't justified by keeping the covenant or in particular circumcision. And he goes, and that, you got to realize this, it's really beautiful. And I don't know, I'm a nerd, I guess. But it, this whole idea of Abraham and the covenant comes in Genesis 18, where about circumcision comes in Genesis 18. But Paul says, that's not what justified Abraham. He pushes back, not 18, go to 15. 
in 15 it says, and he repeats it in uh, chapter 15, and you see in verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. It says, so also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Amen. So he's saying, before, no, not the circumcision part, go before that. He's taking them before that. Paul's making his case here that the Gentiles are not saved by following the law or the covenant, but by believing like Abraham did. Before, Abraham believed even before there was law, and technically the law came when Moses came, like 400 sometime years later, actually, if you read that portion. And that is the emphasis right now. That's the point he's trying to make. The Gentiles are children of Abraham because they have been justified based on their believing in Christ and not justified by the law. We've heard this time and time again through this passage. That's why. And now he's appealing. You're justified by what happened, by what Christ did. And now he's appealing to that experience. And I know Pastor Chandler pointed to that, you know, because he, he starts appealing to their to their experience, and like, you know, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then he says, uh, uh, verse 1, 3, he says, before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's talking, hey, this is what you know, this is what you've experienced. And then if you look at verse 4, he says, have you experienced so much in vain? He's appealing to their experience, but now this is the neat part. The rest of the chapter, he uses the Old Testament to explain to these Gentiles what they have experienced. If you have an experience and don't back that up with the Word of God and sound theology, that experience is meaningless. Because that experience, and I know Chandler talked about the worship experience. What is the difference between someone screaming and shouting at a concert or a game Versus what we do right here in church. If we don't back that up with the word of God. And that's what he's trying to do here. Hey you've experienced this. And now he's taking them through. Basically going through the Old Testament. To show them to back up their experience with scripture. Just a couple of things that I want to point out. Because the beautiful passage right here. Before we get into really the points as such. One of the things is you, you realize. Uh, Paul has been talking about the distinction has been between justified by the law, salvation through the law, and salvation by faith in Christ. So that's the part he's been going. And in verse 3, it's kind of interesting if you read verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you not trying to finish by means of the flesh? This is the next comparison he's going to get into in chapter 4 and 5. What does it mean to live by the flesh and live by the Spirit? So he gives us a little taste about where he's going with this argument, again, I don't know, I just think it's awesome. But, he's getting to that. But Paul here is focusing in this portion, he's focusing about this. To enjoy the blessings of Abraham, don't focus on the covenant, you've got to focus on the promise. Amen. The covenant was in 18 as such, and then, but the promise was made, what he believed was in, uh, was, and he's saying focus on that promise as such. Verse 18, it says, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For if the inheritance depends, this is the inheritance of Abraham, basically, depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. He's talking about, and I'll, I'll tie these together, bear with me here. 
He's making that distinction. Don't go by the law, go by the promise. Paul is saying the inheritance of Abraham does not depend on you keeping the law. It depends on God's promise. Think about that. Keeping the law requires your performance, but he's saying it's not based on your performance. It's based on what God has promised to you. Man, that's so good. I don't have to perform to maintain and keep my ticket to heaven. It's based on what Christ has done and his promise that I am eternally secure when I put my trust in him. That's what he's focusing on. Focus on the promise. And this is exactly where the Jews missed it and the Jewish Christians, I mean the Jewish Christians missed it. For them, the promise that God gave to Abraham was, was kind of tied up to the land, you know, the promised land and the temple and the city. That's what they focused the promise was about. But if you read Genesis 18, 18, God's promise to Abraham was what? That the seed, your seed, talking about Jesus. The promise of Abraham was Jesus and that through Jesus, the rest of the world will be saved. That was the promise. They're focusing on the covenant, but he's saying, focus on the promise. The promise is not the land. The promise is salvation in Christ Jesus. That's what he's pointing to. And he does it so amazingly here. Chapter 3, verse 8, it's kind of interesting. Again, if you read chapter 3, verse 8, just a few, like I said, I'm just picking out a few points. There's so much there. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This is reflecting Genesis 18, 18. It's kind of interesting because the, there's a word play. There's a word play there. Uh, let me get to it. Sorry. Bear with me. Uh, what was it? Verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce uh, the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you. It's kind of interesting. The word play there is the word used for nations. The Greek word is uh, ethne. Okay. I'm sorry. The Greek word is ethne to describe nations. But you've got to understand the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew Bible when it was translated to Greek in 1818, it uses that same word ethne. So he says instead of for us, we read it nations, how it is, uh, how it is supposed to. That's the literal meaning. But someone who reads ethne in the first century, you'll say, okay, you know, through this, all the Gentiles will be blessed again. So it's kind of interesting wordplay right there that you are blessed because you are children of Abraham, not because you have kept the covenant, but because of God's promise to Abraham. It's not so much about the land. It's about the promise of the Messiah. Verse 14, he says he redeemed us, and this is amazing. He redeemed us in order that... The blessing, give it to Abraham. And this is just, this captures the whole thing here. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Got to see this here because Paul is just amazingly just putting this together. He's trying to say here, the children of Abraham enjoyed the blessings of Abraham. Why? Because they enjoy, they get to enjoy the promises of Abraham. And what are those promises? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Where did the Jews ever look? I mean, that was the promise. If you read, especially in the prophets, they were looking forward to the day when the Spirit would come, right? 
And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. The promises given to Abraham was what? The Messiah, your seed, and the promise of the Holy Spirit as so. Focus in on that. It's kind of, like I said, it's just, he's trying to say, you Jews are children of Abraham, not because you follow the law, but because you have received by faith the promise of Abraham. That is, you have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why you are children of Abraham. Those are the two qualifications to be children of Abraham. Accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you all know we're not talking about tongues here, right? And now these Gentiles are doing the same exact thing. They've received the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. And they've also received the Holy Spirit. That's the qualification to be the son of Abraham or children of Abraham. Now why are we adding the law to that? That's his argument here. Why add the law? That's how you were saved. That's how you became children of Abraham, not by following the law. The Gentiles have experienced the same exact thing. Now, don't add the law. Just quit. It's kind of interesting that they still don't get it. So why start to just follow the law? In fact, he goes on to say, you don't need the law. You don't need the law because you don't follow the law. That You don't need the law because you don't follow the law that's written on a stone tablet. You follow the law that's written on your heart. It's a different law. Amen. It's kind of amazing appeal that Paul is making here. Because it just, it just kind of, as I was meditating on that, it just kind of came to me. Because what was at the heart of the law for the Jews? Deuteronomy 6, where he says the Lord your God is one God. But what does it say? At the heart of it was what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That was at the heart of the law. And Jesus is, I mean, Paul is saying, you cannot fulfill that requirement. You cannot love God like that at all, with all your heart. No, we cannot do that. And Jesus brings that same concept into the New Testament, saying what? Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And here's what Paul is saying. If you want to fulfill this new law, if you want to call it that, the Christ law as such, there's no way you can do it on your own. You can only do it by the empowering that comes from the Holy Spirit. If you think you can live a victorious Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are wrong. You'll be trying what the Jews did for years to follow a law by following all the rules. But if you don't experience the Holy Spirit in your life, and I'm not talking about tongues. I'm talking about the power of God that just comes into your life and transforms your life. You will never be able to live what Christ demands from us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Of course, he has to love your neighbor too. That's why we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Kind of amazing, like I said, he paints this beautiful picture here. Because in this picture, you see, in this verse, that you see that the work of Christ is available to everybody. You see that the blessings of Abraham are available to everybody, and you also see the gift of the Holy Spirit available to everybody. Thank God for that. None of this requires you to follow the law. Get Christ by faith. When you have faith and put your trust in Him, become a child of Abraham, enjoy the blessings of Abraham, and you also have the Holy Spirit that dwells richly inside of you. Amen. Why follow a law? And as you keep going in verse 19, the question says, then what's the point? And verse 19 says, 
why then was the law given? That's the question that's asked because you spend all this time saying, hey, you don't even need the law. So the question, natural question is then why do you need the law, right? Why then do we even have the law? And that's the question Paul is answering. Please understand, and I've said this before, Paul is never against the law. What he's fighting is the Jewish understanding of the law. Let me say this before we go any further. And I was, salvation is not a matter of following the rules in church. Now it sounds different. But it's not a matter of following the rules. Too many people buy into that. Well, it's a matter of believing and then doing good things. Doing, you know, being a better, being a good person, being religious, going to church, taking communion, being baptized, tithing, supporting missionaries. Salvation is not really all about that. All salvation really is, is a gift that God gives you and you accept it by faith. And faith alone. John 1, it says, as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become what? The children of God. Even those who believe in his name. Salvation is believing in his name. John 3, of course, the famous verse. God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans chapter 3, righteousness of God. How does it come? Through faith in Christ for all those who believe in him. Ephesians 2, it says, for by grace you are saved through faith, not by yourself, not of yourselves, but it is what? A gift of God. And then if you read what Paul's experience in Acts chapter 16, it says, how can we be saved? And he simply says what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's never add to it. It's pretty simple. We accept it by faith. That is the gospel, the one true gospel, nothing else. And thank God in 1517, when Martin Luther figured out that it was not all these things that they were doing in the Catholic church back then. No, it was by faith alone. That's how we are saved. We don't have to prove anything to God. All we got to do is come before him and say, Lord, I believe and I put my trust in you. And in chapter 3, this is exactly what Paul is saying. Again, verse 11, no one is justified by the law. And he says, of course, uh, quotes Habakkuk. It says what? The righteous will live by faith. The true gospel, salvation by faith is not... It's just, an, it's just a gift that God has given to us. That's it. It's just a gift God has given to us. Anyway, sorry, back to the, why the law? Why did God even bother giving the law in the first place? Okay, we know the general idea, but let me just break it down a little more. Number one, the law was given to us because it defined what sin really was. Yeah. In a broad sense of the term. Everybody knows what's right and wrong. It's built into our DNA as such. But people don't have a full understanding of what sin is because right and wrong, different parts of the world, it's a different thing. But the law was given so that we would really know what sin is. The second thing, the law was given not just to show us that how wrong we are, but it also told us, tells us that a violation of the law it's disobedience and rebellion to God. It's serious stuff when you break the law. It isn't just telling you, oh, you're so broken. No, it tells you pretty seriously 
that you have violated God's holy law. So it tells us what sin is about. It reminds us that we have broken and violated, gone against God himself. And the third thing that the law really does is that it reminds us that when we break the law, we deserve death. We deserve death. That's it. The wages of sin is what? Death. You follow the law, guess what? You try and follow the law, you will fall short, you will sin, which simply means what? You are condemned to die. And that's what the law told us. And I think another reason that I think the law is there is because if anybody could work their way to, to God, it was the Jews. And I think the law is there and history is there to tell us that they could not do it. Nobody else can do it. The only way a person can be saved is through Christ. They tried. Trust me, the Jews tried to follow the law to earn that salvation. And it's kind of, it's really, by the time Jesus really comes along, they have been so deceived by their own thinking that they followed the law, that they are super spiritual and religious and accepted by God because they have somehow followed the law. That's why Jesus comes and he says, no, you haven't. That's why they're mad with him. All your righteousness is like filthy rags, basically, is what Jesus says. And they all are like, what are you talking about? They've fallen into the trap that, you know, their works have earned them salvation as such. Jesus, the first thing he does when he comes to the Sermon on the Mount, he destroys their self-righteousness, Right? And so that's what happens in verse 23. I want to read from verse 23 to 29 real quick. Again, why the law and the Abraham's children and everything else? He's answering that question. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Forget about children of Abraham. Now you are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither free, nor, neither slave nor free, nor their male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Before, verse 23, before faith came, and of course he's talking about Jesus right there. Before Jesus came, what were you? And it's really strong words there. You were in custody under the law, basically. Custody under the law. And of course, he says... He doesn't say you, he says we, because he includes himself in this, you know, because he's a Jew, he's talking about him and the Jews primarily, because they are the ones who are under the law. And of course, the Gentiles who had some kind of idea. But he says we were all in bondage to the law. We were kept in custody to the law, literally meaning we were incarcerated by the law. And he keeps on going there, and he says being locked up or being shut up, you're in prison, basically. That's it. Restrained, totally restrained. And that's what he's trying to say. The law for us was a prison. The law for us was a prison. It was a prison. We were under the law. Please understand this. Don't get this disconnect. We're talking about the law here, but it simply means this. 
We are under the law. How does that apply to us? It means that we are under the dominion of sin before we met Christ Jesus. We live under the dominion of sin. Sin holds us prisoner. Sin holds us as a captive. We are literally prisoners, like I said, to sin. Sentenced by the law and headed for execution. And there's no escape because of sin. There really is. And you think about it. That's so, that's so real. That when we lived a life in sin, before Christ came, we were under the dominion of sin. There was one thing we were, we were, it was literally like a person sitting on death row, in death row. All they were doing is waiting for that day to come where the number would be called and they'd be taken out there and executed. That's what it means. To them it meant under the law. That's what it means to us. But then thank God for Jesus. That when he came, he broke us out of that prison. Got us just totally taken off. We're no longer in death row, but we are free to do whatever we want to do. Now we need to be careful. But that's what he's done for us on that cross. The law held us captive. Sin holds us captive. And he's saying, till Christ came. We were locked up. We were in bondage. Waiting. Because we were all law breakers. With no way to escape. Thank God for Jesus. Because I deserve to die. Thank God for Jesus. He says the law held us captive. And the second thing he uses there, uh, the phrase he uses, the word, the, it was like a guardian, which is a very interesting word there. Pedagogos is what they call it. The law was a guardian. Tutor, some translation, but the idea here is it's describing a guardian of young, the word is describing a guardian of young boys. And normally in the Roman world, this was most likely, almost always, be a slave who had the responsibility of being a chaperone as such. A chaperone to be a mentor, to be a guardian. And his main, main duty was to keep this kid out of trouble, to keep this kid out of danger, to make sure that this kid grows up under control and doesn't harm himself. And typically this Pedagogus, this guardian, had the right to discipline this kid. He had the right to discipline this kid if the kid got out of line. And the discipline was often very severe. And that's why these Roman, these boys in the Roman uh, culture would long for the day when they could step out. You know, they, they go on to become this one person where they no longer have to be under this person who's going to be like, whack every time they make a mistake. That's exactly what the law did. Every time they make a mistake, the law brought condemnation and judgment upon their lives. The law was what you call a strict disciplinarian, if you want to call it there. And what did that do? It created fear, and that's exactly what happened. And the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders, they kind of manipulated the fear that these people had, right? Made up all these rules, 700 and whatever rules that they had to follow. But that's exactly what the Lord did. It held them captive, a prisoner 
on death row, but it also came as a person who condemned them, condemned them all the time. Just imagine living your life with constant condemnation that every single thing you do wrong is going to be met with severe punishment. Christ broke us out of that fear. God, even as Christians, sometimes we fall into this trap that I'm making a mistake. God's going to just smack me at the side of my head. Even now, as I've, I mean, I've been a Christian for a long time. Sometimes I think about that, you know. But he doesn't do that. Amen. He brought us out, not for us to live perfect little lives. No, he brought us out to live in his grace so that even when I make a mistake, I do not have to live under condemnation and judgment, but sit there in his presence because he loves me and calls me his son. That's exactly where Paul is going. It's, it's, that's the ultimate purpose. If you read verse 24, it says, what's the purpose of the law? To lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. That's the ultimate purpose, and you see how he does it right there. The law doesn't have any contribution when it comes to saving us. That's it. No contribution to saving us at all. Where is our salvation? In Christ alone, not following the law. That's where it is. Church, where is our salvation? The answer lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By faith in what he has done. By believing in what he has done. That's when we are justified. I mean, and the, the Jews didn't understand, and even the Jewish Christians didn't understand what it means to be in Christ. What's the whole point here? Again, it gets us out of prison, gives us freedom, gives them the freedom, gives us the freedom. Let me say this. The worst thing we can do to kids is to tell them there are no rules at home. I think we live today in America and in India, everywhere. We're living, and I say this with humility, but also with just shaking my head. We're living the consequences of a generation that we were taught, or the previous generation taught. Don't, you know, you don't want to hinder and spoil those kids and break their, you know, their fragile little emotions and all that when we try to coddle these kids and tell them they're free to make their own decision. Don't put limits on your kids' imagination. We are living the consequences of that kind of thinking. So for us kids, young people, the rules are not meant to break you. That's what he's talking about. The, The law was meant to hem you in. The law, it's just this understanding that I can get is it's these blinders this you know when you bowl when you went bowling you have those you know when the kids those guardrails right the guardrails don't knock the pins down what do the guardrails do keep the ball from going away what does it do till it meets its destination and then once you meet that destination you don't need the guardrails anymore that's what Paul's saying about the law the law just kept you in the straight and narrow so that you can meet Christ and when you meet Christ You don't need those guardrails anymore. That's the guardian. The guardian makes you and keeps you in the straight and narrow till you experience Christ. And once you experience Christ, then you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. That's what the law is about. 
man, we whine about rules and everything else. But what's the benefit of following Christ? Love this part. Verse 26 to 29. Let's read that real quick. Just the first part. So, what's the benefit of being in Christ? And this is such a big statement, being in Christ and Christo that he uses. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Forget about Abraham. You're children of God. We enjoy the privileges of being a child of God. That's amazing. Not just a son of Abraham, but a son of God. Mature children, no longer prisoners, no longer under that guardian, no longer that, but free to be the child of God with the authority that's given to a child. The authority to become the sons of God reminds me of what John, John 1.12 says. Remember that if we put our trust in Christ and believe in Him, we have the authority to become sons of God. Amen. Sonship, please understand this. Sonship comes with authority. But you're not a son while you're under the guardian. Just think about this. You've got to go through that process and when you meet Christ, that's when you get adopted as a son. And you enjoy the privileges of a son. Sonship. Authority. We have the authority. We have the right. We have the privilege to go to God and speak to him on terms like Abba, Father. That's the biggest privilege we have. Because you are sons. What does it say? God sent his spirit. So that by the spirit we can cry, Abba, Father. And that's so radical. And you got to think, especially after the exile, they had, the Jews had a very high understanding of God in terms of God. That's when, you know, we, most of us know this growing up, that, you know, they didn't even use the word Yahweh, right? But that only started after the exile. After the exile, that's when they really became, that's when they used Shaddai and Adonai because they didn't even want, God is so out of our natural realm, we can't even pronounce his name. And here he's coming and saying, call him Abba Father. No wonder they got mad with him. But that's the privilege of sonship. You can come to God and he accepts you as his son. As his daughter. I don't mean to exclude the women. Man, what a privilege you enjoy. Very often a son doesn't have to make an appointment to come meet his parents. I know sometimes they do. But a son just walks in. He probably knows the key code to get into the house too, right? To come in, even if you're not home, he probably go make himself whatever, go back to his room. I don't know what's going to happen. When they grow up, you're going to go to a one-bedroom house. They don't come back ever. <laughs> but, but you understand what a privilege it is to be the son and a daughter of God. You don't have to jump through all these hoops. You don't have to come to him, almighty, savior, father of mine, can I come home? No. We come to him as Abba Father and he just wraps his arms around us and pulls us in. Amen. You and me enjoy that. Not because we're perfect, 
Not because we get it right every time. Not because we don't make mistakes. It's because of what Jesus has done. I can come running to my father and he will love on me like a father does. That's the privilege of being in Christ. You get to be a son. Let me finish up real quick. It says you are clothed with Christ. You've been baptized into Christ. And you know he's not talking about water baptism there. But Paul explains it in Romans. To be baptized in Christ simply means what? You are baptized into the death of Christ. And in as much as you die with Christ, you also live in Christ. Being in Christ brings you real life. Without Christ, you were on death row. Now that you are in Christ, you have life, abundance of life. Why would you not want that for your own life? And the third benefit, I love this part, especially in the times we live in right now. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Please, let me tell you this. He's not erasing the, distinct, erasing the distinction between people. They were still Jews. They were still Gentiles. They were still, he didn't tell all the people, hey, let all your prisoners go, let all your slaves go. He wasn't saying that at all. But he was saying, in Christ, when you come to me, you come to me as Christ comes to me. Because you in Christ and Christ in you. I see Christ living in you and I accept you. Who doesn't matter who you are, where you are, the color of your skin, it does not matter. When you are in Christ, I recognize Christ in you and I accept you as I would accept Christ. We are one. That's the message this world needs right now. We are one in Christ. Man, I have three more pages, but I just want us to stop there. There is no room for arrogance, pride, supremacy, hostility against one another in the body of Christ. There is no room for us to talk bad about someone else who is in Christ because when we talk bad about someone else, we are actually talking bad about the Christ in him too. Understand to be in Christ gives you the privilege yes we come to him with fear and trembling but we also come to him with confidence because he's my dad he's my Abba father don't live under the law the law brought condemnation if you live under if you live under the burden of condemnation let me tell you this You're not living in the grace of Christ. You're living under the law. The law restricts. The law condemns. Christ gives us freedom. Enjoy what it means to be a child of God. Let's all stand to our feet real quick. You give life. You give love. Jesus, we praise you, God. You give a life. Yes. You are love. Yes. You 
nothing that you have done it's all about Jesus and what he did on that cross realize once again that you don't have to live under the burden of condemnation but you get to be free you don't have to live under the bondage of sin you don't have to live under the pressure of being perfect all you got to do come to him with a sincere heart and say God Abba Father here I am and enjoy enjoy the privilege of what it means to be a son and a daughter of God enjoy the privilege of what it means to be his child Thank you, Father, once again, Lord. We just submit ourselves to you, Lord. And may this truth, the God of your, the truth that you are our Father, sink into our hearts this week. Captivate us when the enemy comes in and condemns. I pray that your life, your love will bring us life too. We no longer will live, God, with the lies of the enemy in our ear, but with the understanding that 
we are your children and that you love us. Thank you, Father, once again. We just commit ourselves into your hands. Be glorified in our lives this week. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.